Hi, welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein, and I am joined in studio by our co-host, Jason Gay. Hey! Hey! Today we're going to talk about music and how to make your kids listen to better music than what they're listening to. And I'll learn that you can't make a child listen to any sort of music. Mm. With our guest, WNYC host of Soundcheck and New Sounds and The Gig Alert and all-around musical genius, John Schaefer. As soon as a parent says, listen to this, this is really great, somehow the little kid radar goes off. Warning, warning! (laughs) (laughs) Now, the reason I'm excited to have John in the studio, uh, A, because I really want to meet him because he's dope, and two, because my kids like terrible music. And Uh, as someone who likes good music, well, I think it's good music, it is endlessly disappointing that they only listen to truly, <laughs> truly shitty music. You're not one of those dads who's like, hey, my kids really like Wilco, man. They just, they're just into it. I didn't force it on them at all. You mean, am I a liar? No. <laughs> None of those kids are into Wilco. Or if the kids are into Wilco, they're little shits. You know, like, kids are not into that dude's voice. I hate to say it. But... Hopefully, John will be able to provide some guidance as to how we can inculcate a good musical sense in our kids. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. We need some help in my household, too. What are you, what, what are your kids getting into these days? Baby shark is still in the rotation, which is, I, you know, I imagine you might have had a baby shark phase in your home, but that is one of the most infernal recordings of all time. How does it, how does it go? Baby shark, do 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 baby shark, do 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 baby shark, do 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 baby shark. Daddy shark. Do, 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 do. We probably were going to get sued. That's no, because no, we added our own artistic. Um, oh, that was our interpretation, our remix. Yeah. That's our baby shark remix. I think I screwed it up. I think it's mommy shark is first. That would be more keeping with the primacy of <laughs> matrilineal children's music. Yeah, boy. You know, I tried for a long time to get my kids into the music I like, yeah. but now they just call all that stuff like sad dad songs. <laughs> like I'm into Nick Drake and I'm into Towns Van Zandt and I'm into Jackson C. Frank and like, yeah, I like sad older white men Yeah, singing. that's really a lineup where they like, yeah, dad, whatever happened to Nick Drake? Oh, whatever happened to Towns Van Zandt? Well, we'll get to that later on in your life. When you're in second grade, we'll talk about <laughs> loss. Oh. God. Um, um, instead, they're into this, they're really into, through their cousin Phoebe, this song called um, Cat Flushing a Toilet. Meow. That's right. Do you know it? Oh, do I know <laughs> it? That is also on heavy rotation right next to Baby Shark. John Schaefer is approaching the studio door. He's opening the studio door. <laughs> hey. Hi. 
Our guest today is John Schaefer, host of WNYC's Soundcheck, New Sounds, and Gig Alert, which you should listen to if you like live music. John is the father of two daughters. Right. In their 20s. Yep. Saratoga. Saratoga, who is 27, and Bella, who is 23. One of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you is because I've been struggling, you know, with how to make my kids listen to not terrible, terrible music. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, as the the Virgil for millions of ears <laughs> in the New York metropolitan region and beyond. And nearly as old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, rescue me from this inferno. Okay, so um, in the way you phrased the question... I know, I said make. Yeah. You can't make the kids listen to anything. Um, what I what I found, I, I had two kind of um, techniques for kind of slipping my music in. I, I didn't care if they were going to, I knew they were going to listen to the pop music that the other six and seven year olds were listening to when they were that age. And that, and that was fine as long as they kind of knew their way around David Bowie and Peter Gabriel and, you know, even lesser known artists than that, I was, I was perfectly happy. Um, so the, the two things, number one, do you play an instrument by any chance? Do you play guitar? Yeah. Okay. So I found this to be an amazing help at bedtime when the kids were bored of the same books night after night. Mm. I, I, and when I got bored with the same books night after night, I started instead just pulling out the guitar and I would just start playing stuff. And, you know, a lot of kid songs are C, F, and G. Yes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of... The old one, four, five. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so I would, I would just play a couple of these songs and kind of eventually, you know, one might modulate to something that wasn't a kid song, but, you know, they're kids. Space they, they don't know it. They, you yeah. know, they, they don't understand the difference. All they know is dad's playing the guitar and singing some songs. I mean, you're playing the guitar, you can play virtually anything for them. For them, it was just another weird song that dad was yeah. singing, yeah. you know? And or Zappa, something like that. Yeah, Zappa was a little beyond me. <laughs> uh, actually, it took me hours just to get the Gary Davis, uh, rudimental version of uh, yeah. uh, Gary Davis blues. Um, but, you know, um, so so that was, for me, a really great way to, to have kind of a captive audience mm-hmm. where, you know, it was better than going to sleep. You know, listen to, listen to the songs. And it's time spent with you. I mean, it's yeah. it, what I like about that approach is it's not that you have a third thing, like the music that you're listening to. You're making the music. It's a connection between you and your kids. Right. And, you know, if, if some of the songs made them feel a little scared, like Space Oddity, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of my daughters did not like Space Oddity. Mm. But that didn't mean I had to stop playing it. It was just, you know... This, too, is a possible response to songs, yeah. which is important for kids to know that not every song has to make you feel happy and giggly. Some songs are going to make you feel sad or a little unsettled, and, and that's okay. And, you know, they are kids. They don't know any better. They haven't yet learned at six that this kind of music is acceptable for my age group and that kind of music is only for dad and his friends yeah. right you know uh and then the other the other thing 
was car rides, long car rides, going to vacation. Um, my younger daughter uh, was a, a very fine travel soccer player, and I happened to be the coach. So, you know, we would have long rides in the car to tournaments and stuff, and, you know, plug in the iPod, and, you know, I'd, I'd make playlists, and the kids would get a, you know, steady diet of Block Party and The National and St. Vincent and, you know, bands that I thought were really cool yeah. that their friends would probably have never heard or heard of. And, you know, so they they, they got a sort of, a, again, it's a captive audience. It's and there captive, was, but it, what I like about what you're saying is it's also not aggressive. Like, right. not to say that I do this because I obviously don't, but like sit my sit Achilles down, he's my seven-year-old, and be like, you know, we were talking about it before, like, this is Nick Drake. Yeah. Like, listen, yeah. it's really good music. He's like, <laughs> I, I learned really early on that that is just self-defeating. Yeah. yeah. As soon as a parent says, listen to this, this is really great, S somehow the little kid radar goes off. Yeah. You know, warning, warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what's, a, what's a formative... Uh, recollection you have of your own sort of musical education of you know through a parent or someone else just a moment of discovery that made you a you light know, went on well you know um I, I didn't realize it at the time because again i was a kid right. um my dad was a, a maintenance worker at a building in lower manhattan okay. that was owned by rca at the time oh, okay. yeah 50 broad street um right next door to where my daughter would eventually end up going to high school, <laughs> which was really weird. Anyway, um, and he would occasionally, we didn't have a lot of music in the house, but occasionally RCA Records would distribute singles and LPs to, to the workers, and he brought home this little single, and, um, you know, I put it on, and it was like, there was no singing. There was no singing in it, but it was really kind of cool, and it was... It was sort of weird. I had never heard anything like it. It was The Hall of the Mountain King by yeah. Edvard Grieg. From his pure... I, mean, I had no idea what classical music was. Right. My dad had no idea what classical music was. But it was this fun little three-minute piece. Now, in fact, it's, it's kind of a scary piece um, when set in context, but... You know, sitting in my living room with a little 45 RPM player, it was just like, oh, this this is kind of cool. I, you know, I like it. It's got a it's got a neat melody to it. It's got this boom 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 boom. You know, it's got this fun kind of bass line. I, of course, I had no idea of terminology like that mm -hmm. bass line. I just knew that I liked it. Yeah. Okay, that's the end of side A. We're going to hear a word from our sponsors and be back with the B side. I love the idea that it's totally genre free because when you look 
I just looked it up. I think you're on episode 4,174 of New Sounds. (laughs) But when you look, just even scrolling through, your approach to music also seems, I know now as an adult, you probably do classify it in some way as genre as a organizational tool, but it's so Catholic and it's so freewheeling and that sense of discovery of you being a kid listening to Grieg and not knowing where to contextualize it, but just listening to the sound wash over you. Yeah. Well, I have to say that, you know, as I became, you know, uh, an older kid, you know, once I hit like 10 and 12 and especially 14, um, that Catholicism really narrowed, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, as it does, you know, uh, neuroscientists say that the, the brain connections that we make at 14, 15, 16, that those are some of the most powerful connections that we make to music and art and literature, and those stay with us forever. And, you know, as hard as it is to get a six-year-old to listen to something new, it's even harder to very often to get a 30-year-old to listen to something new. Yeah, which is why it's amazing to me that New Sounds is so wide, like widely sweeping. Yeah, and... I feel like you're like one of like um you know like a contortionist like you have no <laughs> joints you know and you're so flexible in your taste yeah and to stay that flexible i mean even for me i don't know how you feel jason but like i find myself by default narrowing my my taste and it's like i rely on something like new sounds to try to touch my toes yeah well um you know, I think that's because uh, at around 16, I stumbled onto something that kind of was just, it wasn't just a door I hadn't seen before. It was a door with a whole hallway behind it. And that was Side Two of Low mm-hmm. by David Bowie. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I stumbled onto Bowie. I, I had heard this um, version of 2001, the Space Odyssey theme, you know, the Richard Strauss, um, but it was kind of this jazzy version of it. I had no idea who it was or what it was called. I was, you know, I was like, I was a freshman in high school. Yeah. So I went to the record store when there were still record stores. Yeah. <laughs> and in the window, they had the top 40. And I'm looking and I'm looking for anything that says 2001 Space Odyssey and down at the bottom it says David Bowie Space Oddity and I oh well, that, that's clearly <laughs> got to be it right that's your career be is it. based on a typo <laughs> <laughs> well it's an odd version of the Space Odyssey theme so of course this is it so I bought it I took it home I was like what is this <laughs> this is not what I expected at all but I liked it mm. you know I liked the story that was being told in this so anyway so I accidentally became a David Bowie fan and then just became a huge Bowie fan. So the B-side of Low, is that um, Be My Wife? Is that No, that's A-side. Those are the songs. Those okay. are the, the kind of crazy pop songs. Yeah. The B-side is the instrumental stuff uh, okay. with Brian Eno, the song Varjava, um, you know, which is just these tolling, majestic, really sad Eastern European sounding keyboards with Bowie wailing in a made-up language over the top. And then 
a couple of pieces that were inspired by Philip Glass and Steve Reich. So, you know, I was just like thunderstruck by this. Mm. And that set me on a path to discovering who Eno was and Mm. listening to his music, discovering who Philip Glass and Steve Reich were and listening to their music. And so every door opened onto other doors. And for me, that's, that's how it's continued to be. Yeah. I want to ask you about, you know, as it applies to young people, um, just that process of discovery. And I don't want to sound like, you know, a bunch of old fogies here and say that, you know, it was better in our days because in many, many ways, you know, it's spectacularly better now uh, yeah. in terms of accessibility. But when you say like, okay, Eno opens a door to Glass, who opens a door to Reich, who opens a door to, you know, a whole new wave of, uh, these are not like, clicks <laughs> these are right. you're getting off your fanny and you're walking somewhere and you're buying things and and i think sometimes in my own sort of discovery records you bought some real bad ones too right yeah, you bring stuff sure. home and you're like wow that, i don't like that whatever and that was seven <laughs> bucks of hard-earned paper out money um you really are an old folk oh god is there but he's, some... Hey, he's speaking my language. But, That's, yeah, that, no, it was right. all paper route money. <laughs> John, Wait, like, what's John, paper media? You know, like, I don't understand. Me, give, me, give me a reason to be uh, buoyantly optimistic about discovery and you know just those processes that you went through, which are so critical to your development, um, still existing today. Well, I, I guess I, I would have to be optimistic um, just because seemed to work mm. for my kids you know the idea that yeah. um that it was so much easier to to open those doors and you know i i also feel like and this is something that i i try and keep in mind every time i do one of the x number of new sound shows that i've done over the years is you got to play fair with your audience whether that's you know, a radio audience that you can't see or your two kids in the back seat of the car what do you mean by that well a uh, number of things um one is that if you're going to slip something on them that's really unusual, it will go down easier if it's set in context. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for my kids, you know, um, I happen to like Rolling in the Deep by Adele. Now, what 12-year-old in the, whatever year that was, 2006 or seven, didn't like Adele? So that would be on one of the car playlists. And you know, the kids would be in the back seat, or it would be, you know, soccer daughter and three or four of her teammates all <laughs> crowded into the car, and they'd be like, yeah, rolling in the deep and singing along, and then the next song would come on, and it would be, you know, uh, it'd be something by Ockerville River or mm-hmm. <laughs> somebody like that. Um, but you needed that pedal tone to kind of it, get them there. It, 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 you ended up, or uh, this is how I felt about it. I felt like I was almost curating a show. Yeah. So the playlists on my iPod were like shows that I thought, first of all, that I could listen to over a long stretch of time, you know, in a car. But I also felt like the kids in the back would have entry points in. And then once once they were there, I got them. In my house, we have a Google Home. And my seven-year-old... Uh, the whole reason we're having this show is because he really likes this song called Cat uh, Flushing a Toilet. <laughs> I want to hear that. <laughs> I, 
yeah. went on a deep you thought, dive. You thought the second side of low was uh, <laughs> yeah, mind blowing. Flushing the toilet, he's a cat. Flushing the toilet, he's a cat. Flushing the toilet, he's a cat. I asked Jason to think of what his kids listen to. My son likes three songs, um, both of them. The younger one only listens to what the older one listens to. Uh-huh. Um, Cat Flushing a Toilet, Hamster on a Piano, and Believer by uh, Imagine Dragons. And maybe it's a repetition. I've heard each one. I checked the Google Play. Like I've heard each one maybe between 100 and 175 times. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's a lot. <laughs> but he knows to ask for that. You know, he yeah, he yeah. has a thing in his head and then the thing comes back at him. And what you're talking about, even from that very moment of space oddity, space odyssey, is stumbling. Exactly. When you have at your disposal everything, you have nothing mm. because you're just it's like being it's it's like being confronted with the blank page. Yeah. You know, when when all possibilities are there. How do you even begin? You know, Stravinsky famously said he needed parameters. He yeah. needed restrictions. Right. It helped him to to kind of get Isn't the that composition. Isn't that a Duke Ellington line? I don't need a. I need a deadline. Yeah, I, I mean, this uh, this is co- pr- completely is common yes. throughout the creative arts. What you're talking about, John, though, is you're talking about sort of an active participation in your children's programming. I think of like, you know, okay, so you're giving them the Adele and then you're bringing them in and then giving them something new. What I am terrified most of all is, you know, you could literally go onto your phone and say, soccer car trip songs right. or cocktail party or holiday time or like you know now we're just like matching mood to playlists right. and we're thinking algorithmically or not thinking at all rather like rainy tuesday at 11 a.m <laughs> and all of those things are fine for what they are but you know to go back to the the first question you guys asked yeah. is how do you get you you have to be active yeah you can't just you know delegate that responsibility if you see it as a responsibility to an algorithm or to someone else's playlist yeah al gore has no rhythm (laughs) i wonder i do wonder (laughs) i do wonder though about okay one of the great tenets of musical discovery is rebellion right and what is going to happen to all these hipster parents Mm. out there who are you know raising their kids on the ramones and uh you know the the Minutemen and so on and then all of a sudden they're going to turn 14 they're going to start listening to like enrique iglesias or like how is that going to work and what is going to be the rebellion against the rebellious parent music uh that will be fascinating to watch i you know and i've sometimes wondered if that was a um kind of a generational thing that ended when the the kind of iconic bands of one generation were still the iconic bands for the next generation yeah. Yeah. you know i yeah. i'm i'm the oldest of nine yeah uh so my younger brother wait and you grew up in manhattan i grew up in queens okay where richmond hill okay. near forest park yeah um so at where almost all of my family still live so my youngest brother was born when I was in college. So I might as well, I was old enough to be his dad, literally. He's another generation from me. But, you know, the Rolling Stones were still around and, you know, and now 
for like your kids. The Rolling Stones are still around. Yeah. You can still take kids to see the Rolling Stones and point. they still put on a great show. Right. Um, so what does rebellion look like for this generation? I think it, it, it just looks like acceptance of really good music and I'm still going to listen to, you know, I'm still going to listen to the top 40 of the day because that's what I'm supposed to do as a kid. What were your first uh, musical discoveries? I, I mean, I grew up, a, I was a radio kid, you know, WBCN in Boston, WFNX, which was the alternative. So I'm, I'm started trying to think beyond, you know, earlier than like my, you know, all music, you know, immersion, like what sort of stuff I was into. I mean, I had the classic... You know, my father had a record collection. My father was not an active uh, influencer. He was not saying, hey, kids, blonde on blonde. However, <laughs> however, he had the record collection and he had the hi-fi and he, you know, I was drawn to albums, frankly, by album art yep. oftentimes. And uh, the, you know, gorier or stranger, the more compelled I was into it. And so it was everything from, you know, I did get to listen to Blood on the Tracks at a young age, and I was listening to Boss Gags, and then Saturday Night Fever, what is this? Um, <laughs> but the, uh, my, I think the thing I remember most of being my first like record purchases, I got kooky about soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Huh. I remember like buying like the E.T. soundtrack on vinyl and bringing huh. that home and sort of like trying to reimagine the film through the... Um, through the through the actual music of it, it was a way of sort of replaying the movie in my head. Well, that I, that certainly makes sense with um, like Disney movies and stuff. You know, my yeah. kids were big into uh, the the soundtracks for the Lion King, Aladdin, and, Aladdin yeah. and all of that. You know, knew also all those, those songs. songs are good. They're, they're just yeah, they're really well constructed songs. Yeah. They got great people to write them, and you know, top people to play and and record them. So what's not to like? How do, again, more entry points for yeah. for your your subversive dad music playlist. I mean, I remember <laughs> like my first mm, intergenerational transmission of music was Lorena McKennett, who uh-huh. was like this w- Canadian uh, sort I, of neo folk new age sort of artist. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea why my mom was into her, but I found that one, I found a tape of it once, and then she's playing the local theater, the Keswick, and we like went to the Keswick and saw Lorena McKennett, and I was just so blown away that you could see the person who you had played earlier, it, like in your life, and they were making that music live. Yeah. When in the springtime of the year, when the tree crowned with leaves when the ash and oak and the birch and hue are dressed in ribbons fair but then like the about the doors like I'm probably a cliche but I discovered some through my dad some part of Dylan and then through Dylan Harry Smith and then through Harry Smith like a whole wor- Harry Smith, the ethnomusicologist, and then through Harry Smith, just this crazy world of ballads and blues and Mississippi Delta blues, which as right. a kid in suburban Philadelphia, like really like heavy into like Mississippi John Hurt. It was like, yeah. you know, I was a little lonely, let's be honest, but I, he provided some sort of door and I walked through it and found my own floor plan. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, 
again, the, the fact that you came to those records as opposed to your dad saying, sit down, I want to play you something, makes a lot of difference. And, you know... Yeah. But it, the, but interestingly, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if he consciously guided me to Dylan because Dylan had such a crazy catalog of influences, but I trusted Dylan's taste. Yeah. So if he was into these guys, then I was into these guys, you know? Yeah. And it, you can get there with your kids where they think, well, you know... Dad actually knows something about this yeah, stuff, right. and you know if he's listening to this. So if if I'm putting on you know Hakuna Matata and following it with the Soweto Gospel Choir, yeah, that's going to make kind of audio sense, mm-hmm. but it's also going to get my kids into a whole nother sonic room from the one they thought they were in two minutes ago. Oh, that that's a news you can use. Yeah, <laughs> John, how how. Uh, you know, helpful is it to have the access to seeing people live, but also just sort of to be able to connect music to contemporary things that are happening. I think of like, you know, in your life, like, you know, you were able to not just, you know, grow interested in Philip Glass and the Laurie Andersons and Lou Reeds and the Talking Heads and the whole burgeoning New York scene. This was an active thing happening in your world. Like right, you could right. go and experience it. It wasn't just music to listen to. And I imagine that just, just you know, solidifies that connection like nothing else. Well, you know, there is nothing like the live experience. Um, and I, I, I'm going to tell you guys, it doesn't stop when your kids are five or six. Yeah. I took my 23-year-old daughter to see um, Satyagraha, the Philip Glass opera, at BAM a month ago. It was her first opera. Um, and now she has informed me that for Christmas, she wants to buy her boyfriend two tickets to the Met because she wants to see a real opera in the Met. Um, the, the Satyagraha at BAM was was terrific, but, you know... She was, wants La Traviata. She wants that. Well, they're, they're going to do Carmen. Carmen. Uh, I figure that's perfect. a great, right. you know... Slam dunk. Yeah. I mean, every, a lot of people know the tunes without even knowing they're from opera. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, she'll go and she'll be, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, yeah. Um, strangely, when my older daughter was 16, her first opera was also Satyagraha, but at the Met. And at intermission, we met Gandhi's granddaughter. And uh, so that was like her her Facebook page that night was like, Saratoga met Gandhi's grand. Saratoga's her name. Um, Saratoga met Gandhi's granddaughter. To, nothing about the opera. Nothing yeah. about the music. Just that she met Gandhi's grand. And you know that was like an amazing moment for. So you never know when the live experience, what it is that's going to hit them. But there's there's usually. I mean, you know, there's usually something that they're going to take away from that. Let's put a pin in that. Hear a word from people who want to sell us things, and we'll be back with John Schaefer. So when you were getting into like the downtown scene, um, to Jason's point, could you connect it to the larger cultural scene? Like, you know, it wasn't just music at that moment. It was oh, no, no. So much other stuff going on. Yeah. Um... I was really, really lucky to be going to high school in Manhattan in the mid-70s, and even luckier that one of my best friends 
had a brother and two cousins who played in what was essentially CBGB's house band, mm-hmm. The Shirts. Mm. Great Brooklyn band. Um, Annie Golden was their lead singer, who would later go on to star in the movie version of Hair, and she was on Orange is the New Black, and yeah. she was Cliff Clavin's girlfriend in, <laughs> in later seasons of Cheers. Um, but I knew her as... Um, well, two ways. I knew her as the lead singer of the shirts and also as a secretary in the ABC building where I worked as a messenger. And I would occasionally bring her boss something and there would there'd be Annie behind the, the desk and the phone. And, um, so, you know, getting to see the first flowering of, of punk, yeah. getting to see bands like, you know, uh, Talking Heads, as yeah. a trio before Jerry Harrison joined the band. Oh man, I am dating myself. I think it's very hard to listen to music decontextualized, especially it's from a different culture and kind of understand understand it, divorced from the historical right. um, culture around it. Right, and and you know that's that's why I used uh, that's why I used the example of the Lion King. I thought that soundtrack for me was like gold. You know, it was just like, oh, my God, all this great African music that I can, you know, if they're interested in, you know, the songs from The Lion King, what are they going to make of Fela Kuti or Fatumata Jawara or, you know, some of the other or or the Malatini, the Lion of Soweto, all this great stuff. Um, And to this day, I think if you threw any of those names at them, they wouldn't know necessarily who they were, but if you played some of that music, um, they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's good stuff. Your yeah. youngest is 23, so it's still definitely in the timeline that you could have gone through Barney, that they may have oh, had Barney. Oh, we did Barney. Now, just give Rafi? me... Rafi too. Okay. Rafi was certainly a step up from yeah. Barney. <laughs> I just, if I may be so, so we, have found, we be, have found your judgment If I can zone. be judgmental. <laughs> I just interviewed Rafi, um, and it was really interesting because he comes out of the Toronto coffee house scene. Yeah. And he never gets to talk about himself as a musician. Yeah. Like, no one asks Rafi about the chord progressions or... Um, or who his session musicians are, or like how he records. And he was so eager to talk about that. And I was really moved by how much he also connected what he does now with like Pete Seeger, who was a hero yeah. of his. Yeah. Um, well, um, he's he is a keeper. Uh, and also, you know, one of the great things about songs with understandable lyrics is occasionally your kids will pipe up with a question like, Dad, who's David Amram? <laughs> you know, you listen to Rafi, peanut butter sandwich made with jam, one for me and one for David Amram. Well, there, there's a, I mean, that's a wonderful question for a kid to ask. And for a parent who knows David Amram, it's a wonderful question to answer because... <laughs> who is it, David Amram? David Amram is an American composer who started off, I guess he was best known in the 50s as a jazz arranger but he was also a classical composer who plays all of these ethnic instruments. You know, you you studied ethnomusicology, you would know, I mean, he plays these flutes from East Africa, he plays shakers and rattles from West Africa and, and Eastern Asia, and he... 
you know, he's, he's just, he's circled the globe countless times, bringing together musicians from all these different cultures. He's one of the kind of proto-world music figures. You couldn't ask for a better door to absolutely, open. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's like, that's a gateway to all kinds of different musics from around the world. We were just getting into Bowie, yeah. and Bowie died, and he died in such a beautiful way with his album coming out. I know. It was like art. So, yeah. I found it very moving, and I was playing Lazarus for my five-year-old, and we watched the the video of Lazarus. is really intense. Yeah, that's really dark. It's dark, but also really beautiful, and, and I was trying to explain Black Star, the album, and his death, and Lazarus, and that really... Real life and art and how thin the skin of art was around David Bowie's life, it really ignited something in my five-year-old. Not only did he wonder who Lazarus was, but just the idea that you could handle your own... Well, he wouldn't put it this way, but you can handle your own mortality through art. And, well, was he sick? Was he... He was sick, and he was still making music. And that was... I could just see his brain expanding. I, I had a, a similar thing um, with my older daughter when she was maybe nine. Um, and I was playing um, the Pixies, you know, Monkey Gone to Heaven. Mm. And of course, there's the famous line, if man is five, then, you know, the devil is six. If the devil is six, then God is seven. If man is five, if man is five, if man is five. And I'm driving along, we're in the car, you know, and she pipes up with this parsing of that verse, which left me with like a lump in my throat. She's like, you know, the monkey doesn't know why the man is doing this to him. And, and, you know, and, and so he thinks, well, the man is bad, but the devil must be making him do this to me. And, but if the devil's doing it, then God is letting him do it. And so it's really God's fault. And I was just like, holy crap. (laughs) This is a nine-year-old kid listening to the Pixies in the backseat of the car. And like, I can hear the scales falling from her eyes, you know? It's just amazing. I love it. Yeah. So. Okay. John, uh, thank you for this. I'm no longer going to have uh, prerequisite listening sessions in my house. <laughs> I'm just going to create doors and yeah. invite my children to walk through them. And they'll, walk, plan, they'll walk through some. Plan some nice road trips. Yes. Yeah. And plan, get a car and plan road trips. <laughs> First step, get a car. Good luck with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guys, it's been fun. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. Thank you. I feel like the takeaway from John is A, John Schaefer's cool, great radio guest. B, you can't make your child do anything, especially something that is dependent on their sense of taste, but you can be a pusher man and sort of suggest avenues by which they can experience their own musical taste. True? I think that's right. I think that you just, you know, it's a, it's a metaphor for all of parenting, isn't it? Yeah. You just cannot force it too hard. 
other other point is that I, I think John Schaefer is probably a great dad. And I kind of wish he was my dad. <laughs> I had the same feeling. <laughs> Do you think we can apply? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Soundcheck does have like a contact form. No, I mean like live at the place. Oh. You know, move in. Probably well, got one, great music. One daughter's out of the house. Yeah. Yeah, we could split a room. <laughs> Bunk beds. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Fatherly Podcast. This episode was co-produced by me, Joshua David Stein, and him, Max Savage Levinson. Special thanks to Jason Gay, who's standing across from me. Thank you. I very much enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Our executive producer is Andrew Berman. We record this at iHeart. If you are struggling with anything pertaining to being a father... Yeah. (laughs) Jason... Talk to me after the show. (laughs) But for our listeners, uh, call our hotline. It is a New Jersey hotline. It's 732-416-4571. That's 732-416-4571. Ask your question. You'll get on the air. We'll answer it. I wish it was 732-DAD-HELP, but I don't think it pans out that way. It's 732-416-4571. Look, if you like this podcast, subscribe where you subscribe to podcasts. Also, please do leave a review as long as it's positive and indeed fawning. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, stay cool, dads. Dads.